Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein myself and a co-host introduce each other to films, and in this way, we catch up on our cinema. Uh, So it is the month of November, and today we're doing another Tales from the Shelf special monthly episode. Uh, and here and joining me in this endeavor, I have Brad from the Cinema Speak podcast. How you doing, Brad? I'm doing great. I just I need to say that your tales from the shelf voice it gets better with every episode. I really think you're uh, you're really nailing it. I don't know how it can get better than this one, but I'm always waiting for next month to find out. Well, to quote the great Patrick Bateman, we can always be better, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I put a little extra mustard on that one. Yeah, summoned yeah. a little bit more. Uh, Optimus Primal power behind it, but um, so today, uh, today's Tales from the Shelf episode um, is one that we've kind of been mm, strutting around for a little while, uh, at least in my mind. It's one, it's a topic that I've been wanting to cover for quite a while, and uh, that would be today's episode, Stupendous Scores. Uh, <laughs> so the subject for today is, of course, uh, musical soundtracks uh, from feature films. Uh, or maybe you have a TV series you want to talk about. Who knows? Maybe you want to bring up Twin Peaks. That has a pretty fantastic score. Cross my mind. It did cross my mind. I mean, I I know you have it, so maybe you can snag <laughs> it off your shelf right quick while I'm not looking or something. But um, so yeah, today uh, we're going to be talking about the subject of movie scores and soundtracks. Um, I'm not sure if you covered both of those, um, like soundtracks and scores, but um, my collection, I took it upon myself to grab a few from each category. Um, But yeah, basically what we're going to do today is uh, both Brad and I um, happen to be owners of substantial physical media collections. Uh, So we're just going to be perusing our wares and uh, sharing a little something about some of the movies on our shelves that have special soundtracks or exceptional scores or maybe even stupendous scores. (laughs) So... um, being as I chose the topic today, Brad, uh, would you like to go first, or should I have at it? Why don't you take it away? Why don't you lead off this round? Okay, that's that sounds great to me. Uh, I feel like you usually lead, so this is kind of weird. But um, I'll start <laughs> things off with a. Uh, uh, curiously enough, when I was looking over my uh, my shelf, um, I was noticing that there's certain films um, where I have a lot of films from the same composer. Um, actually, I, I noticed a really big one that was kind of shocking. Uh, I think I brought it up on previous episodes, but I'll definitely get to it later today. But um, I had a lot of movies from a single composer. And I was like, damn, I must really like him or, <laughs> or the people he works with or something. Yeah. Um, but, but this, uh, I'll start out with one that uh, serves in, as an example of uh, not only a film that I only own um, one film from the director, I only own one film from this composer as well. Uh, and that would be Gore Verbinski's A Cure for Wellness. My man, my man Gore. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's neat that you and I both have a mutual appreciation for him mm-hmm. because he's, he's kind of divisive. Like, I think the Pirates movies kind of serve as a little bit of a stain on his filmography because, truth be told, they're kind of hit and miss. But from a visual standpoint... They're all hits. Yep. <laughs> They're absolutely gorgeous films. And I think you've said on your show, The Cinema Speak, and we've certainly said on my show, this Catching Up on Cinema podcast, he makes gorgeous films. <laughs> His movies are beautiful. Um, and the score for this film was composed by Benjamin Walfish, um, who I think most recently 
uh, contributed the scores for uh, the the two It films, the Stephen King It films. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the score for A Cure for Wellness is a character unto itself. Um, this movie, as beautiful as it is from a visual standpoint, um, damn, the music is unforgettable. There's there's a couple of melodies that they're just like it's like a virus that gets planted in your brain where it's like good fucking luck getting that out like good luck sleep tonight because <laughs> you're gonna hear that little girl making I don't even know if it's like it's not a hum it's not a it's not singing it's like a nah noise she's just making a nah noise mm-hmm. like like she's doing a cat impression or something <laughs> and good luck getting that sound out of your head because it is all over the score but in the moment when you're listening to it um it fuck it just sucks you right in especially in the early stages of the film when uh there's a lot less dialogue it's more just pure audio visual experience um you've you've seen this film right oh yeah i've only seen it the one time because it is quite long um but i i liked it a a lot and i thought yeah visually it's amazing i i did like the score quite a bit some definitely standout memorable I don't want to say gross out, but very uncomfortable uh, sequences. Some of them involving eels, I believe it is. Um, and uh, yeah, I, it's one I do want to revisit. I mean, you know, I hate to say it, but really the only thing that, as of right now, I can remember being a downside is uh, Mr. Dane DeHaan, who. Uh, oof, oof. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he had he had a spurt there where he was he was picking great because he was in Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, which I think is great. He was in Cure for Wellness. I think that's great. It just he just is not good. He's both those movies. He's the worst part of. No, Amazing Spider-Man too. He's he. I don't think he's a very good actor. I think from a visual standpoint, he has a look to him mm-hmm. that is probably appealing to a lot of filmmakers because he. I mean, picking him for the Green Goblin. I'm sorry, but that does kind of work. Yeah. <laughs> like that makes the makeup technician's job a little bit easier. Um, although I do think it's unfortunate that uh, somebody posted on the, the internets um, when Amazing Spider-Man 2 came out that uh, his Green Goblin bared a very strong resemblance to Beavis from Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, that's not a goblin. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, he's not good. I, I don't think he's any good, but he just has a look to him that kind of works. And his uh his line delivery is very unusual, where it's like good luck figuring out where he's from just, just based on his speech pattern and his yeah. voice. Yeah. Like it's kinda hard to place and I guess that's kinda neat. And he has I call them I call it a them eyes. Like he, he has very good eyes for film. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, I don't think he's a very talented actor. <laughs> but, yeah, even people were singing his praises in Chronicle. I think that was his breakthrough. And uh, I don't know. I, I Maybe that was in terms of, like, casting. Maybe that was his best, like, fit. But uh, I don't know. I was never crazy about that movie, and I don't remember being overly crazy about his performance in that as well. He, he looks like Leonardo, a younger Leonardo DiCaprio if you put him through, like, Seth Brundle's telepod. And <laughs> m- maybe some, like, wallpaper got stuck in the machine or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, him aside, uh, I think the movie itself, like, not even talking about the score, but I think the movie itself is good to a point. Um, it does kind of peter out a bit uh, at about, like, the third act, I guess. Um but just the audiovisual experience alone. This this is this is a case of a score making all the difference in the world. 
where this movie would be very boring uh, if not for the music serving as a companion to guide you through a lot of some of the slower scenes of which, like you said, the runtime's pretty long and there are many there are many scenes of just people walking around places and looking at things and not saying anything for a long time. But because the visuals are so luscious and the music, the soundtrack's so varied and, and just like full, like it never feels as boring as it easily could be. Actually, when the movie starts to lose me is when it tries to do too much when it starts to get too energetic Mm -hmm. it's like oh we're doing this kind of ending in this movie it's like okay (laughs) yeah that's right i mean i guess if you have jason isaacs he's a pretty vital guy maybe you have him choke slam people through lab equipment why not (laughs) it's like yeah i I would ask him to do that little special effects heavy towards the end too i remember some uh stuff that uh well not to get into spoiler, but yeah. visually how some a character didn't he change his look or something, and I wasn't crazy about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how deep you dug into your collection, but um, a, a couple of uh, tracks that I can single out as uh, being standout on the score um, is the first track on the soundtrack. Is, I think it's called Hannah and Volmer. Um, it serves as the main theme uh, for the entire film. And uh, it's a very complete track that kind of like covers many different angles of the emotional spectrum. And like I said, it's kind of the core theme of the whole movie. And then it's reprised in a couple of more tracks later in the score um, that serve as really, really strong companion pieces to each other. Um, I think the the one track is a waltz, like a really, pu- like really pretty, like fun waltz called uh, The Right. Uh, and then it just descends into madness, like... Um, it, it sounds like a musical cyclone. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then it abruptly cuts off, and I think it actually transitions seamlessly into, um, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's like Führerwaltzer. So uh, my understanding of like Swiss-German isn't great, but I want to say it's Firewaltz or Fire Dance probably. Yeah. Um, and it takes those same beautiful melodies and kind of perverts them and turns it into like a, a rollicking action track. And it's really awesome. Um, I love when I love when uh, melodies get repurposed like that, where it's like just by changing the the pace and the instrumentation, it's like whoa, you took something that's meant to be like melodic and pretty and made it like aggressive and kind of mean spirited, but it's the same it has the same musical characteristics to it, I guess. But um, those those I would say are the best tracks on the score. Um, I don't know if this is a movie that I'm glad I'm glad you didn't spoil because um, it's one that I, no nobody fucking talks about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I I don't think it's an amazing movie, but I do think it's certainly worth your time. Yep, and it will always be a memorable uh, movie for me because it was the movie where uh, we watched a woman crawl along the floor to uh, go under people's reclined uh, seats to uh, get out of the aisle because the aisles were so small. That instead of asking oh. instead of asking the uh, aisle to you know have to go th- put their recliner down, she just crawled underneath all of us, which was uh you know almost like a 4D experience for this kind of movie. It was quite creepy. All of a sudden, there's a woman crawling under you, um, in the middle of a Gore Verbinski horror film. I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> How conscientious of her! Wow. <laughs> I, know, yeah. I mean, it was conscientious, but honestly, it was probably more distracting than if she had just asked us to stand up. Because, like, uh, me and my friend Bobby were the ones that saw the movie together, and we uh, were probably laughing for like five minutes after the fact. 
I, I mean, that's not something you see every day. And especially during a horror movie, like if a woman is like sliding underneath <laughs> your reclined chair, it's a little, like not the right time, lady. Yeah, <laughs> like everybody's yeah. on edge in here. We don't need people creeping around on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, Benjamin Wallfish, like I said, this is the only movie I own. Uh, that he did the score for and uh, I don't have him pulled up on on the internets right now but I do know he's mostly known for doing horror scores um, and it's based on like uh, his contributions to it I want to say he's like a, a Hans Zimmer protege and he's not afraid to go big because um, damn it too in particular f- holy fuck like even even just on a pure mu- like from a pure musical standpoint that movie is too loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they they pushed it way too hard in that one. Um, yeah, pretty good, pretty good score for both of those movies, but just way too too big, too over the top. By the time they got to the second one, if you ask me. Yeah, looks like he also did um, uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine with Hans Zimmer. Uh, I can't remember like how it was the relation when that came out because it was like Hans Zimmer only did a few tracks or something. But then this Benjamin Wallfish, I think, did, like, the majority of the score. But, like, the tracks that Hans Zimmer did were, like, you know, the big, like, ones that everyone kind of, the main theme or whatever. I could be wrong on that. But so he's got some sort of connection with uh, good old Hansi. Well, Han- I forget the name of it, but Hans Zimmer has a musical collective mm-hmm. um, that actually, like, I-, I think part of the music community is, like, angry with. Because oh, yeah. they're thought of, they're thought of, like, the New York Yankees, like, like at the height of their powers kind of where it's like oh that's a stacked team like that that stable's unfair like you got all the money and power in the world and yeah. you're setting the musical trends you're you're poisoning the musical landscape of hollywood and they're not wrong <laughs> like there is a little bit of a generic sameness that has started to creep in over the past decade or so and i think um, there's been some criticism of uh good old hansi um n- n- you know because uh uh, I was gonna say not because he's like being Hansi with anybody, nothing like that, <laughs> nothing bad like that. But um, uh, because he'll have his his crew will work on some of these scores, and he'll come in. You know, he's the guy that comes in last minute on the group project, changes a few things around, a few notes here, maybe a time signature change here, and then he takes all the credit for it. He's like, oh, there we go, score by Hans Zimmer, and. Who knows how much work he actually put in. Might have been a lot of his his patsies that did a lot of the work. Well, I mean, it needs to be said, and we're starting to get to the weeds here, but it needs to be said um, as far as like contemporary film composers go, he is the one that comes to mind when it comes to collaborations. Yeah. Very few other musical composers for films um, have multiple people cited, uh, but him it's pretty regular. And, you know, by the time they got to The Dark Knight Rises, James Newton Howard did bow out. Mm-hmm. And there's maybe reasons for that, um, none that have been publicly disclosed. But mm, that's always strange when you know you have two thirds of a trilogy composed by two guys, and then by the time you get to the third one, that that one guy just decided to say "fuck it, I'm out." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is suspicious. I mean, mm-hmm. Hans Zimmer, he's probably just he's got he. I I don't know for sure, but I bet I bet he's got a big head on his shoulders. I mean, this guy's actually going on tours. Like you can go see Hans Zimmer live in concert and he'll just shred on the guitar, which I would love to do, by the way. I'd love to go see Hans Zimmer live when COVID is over. Um, but yeah, yeah. Very interesting. The world of composers. 
Yeah, I don't even know that much about it. Um, I probably said all that I know just right just now, but I'm glad we got a chance to get into that because uh, I know that's something that not everybody's aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, um, that was my first pick, Brad. Uh, ball is to you, sir. What you got? Well, real quick, let me just do a, a quick a little ping pong here. You brought mm. up uh, the uh, score for Cure for Wellness, and we were talking about Hans Zimmer, good old Hansi. And I didn't have this originally in my pile, but I got to call out the score for the Gore Verbinski, The Ring. The reason I didn't have this in my pile is I feel like I've brought this up on every single episode we've done for this entire show. Um, But I do love Hans Zimmer's score in this. And kind of odd, I was just thinking about this, how Hans Zimmer did the score for The Ring. He did the score for the second two Pirates movies. And I always just assumed that he did the score for the first Pirates movie as well, but it was actually another guy. So it's kind of it was a. Uh, let me see if I can get this guy's name here. Harry Gregson Williams or Nikki Glenn Smith? No, uh, Claude Baudet. Is that his name? Claude. Hang on, I had it here. Baudet. Cla- Claus Bedell. Claus Bedell. Bedell. Um, who I have never really heard of, but I. For in my mind, I just mixed all of them in. That it was Hans Zimmer who did the original Pirates score, but apparently it was not. We got to give this guy, this Claus Bidet, some uh, some credit here. Dude, the the Captain Jack theme is iconic. It's great. That, that's that's like Fourth of July fireworks show iconic. Yeah, <laughs> honestly, honestly, and I bet you, I bet you, Hans Zimmer plays his version of it in concert that he brought up in the sequel. <laughs> Oh damn! Just slapping him in the face. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure. I'm sure this Claus Bidet Bedell is got a solid career. Let's see what the last thing he did is. Make sure Hans isn't taking all the, the work. Hans's goons took him out back and beat his, broke his knees. <laughs> uh, well, the last thing he composed was a video video game called Galaxy Mobile in 2019. Oof, Oof so, that's sad. Hans got. The, I think something something's fishy is going on here. I think Hans got some PR uh, rewriting history here. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he Tanya Harding him, but you know, but his fingers, not his leg, because he's a you know musician. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, that was not my um, original pick. My original pick, which you know came out, I want to say it might have came out the same year as The Ring, and that is another horror film from another one of my boys. Mr. M. Night Shyamalan's Signs, which I absolutely love the score to Signs. James Newton Howard, obviously very influenced by Psycho, which I, I love the score to Psycho as well. But something about this opening theme, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and it just the increasing going up of on the scale, just very creepy. I, I love how it pairs with the, the simple the overly simple opening titles um and there's something just very ominous about it and you know not too often that i can think of in today's age i mean this movie's like 18 years old now but in today's age where there's an opening title sequence on just plain titles almost i mean obviously it's not just like white screen black text it's you know a kind of a greenish aqua hue but it's just the score and the opening titles that open this movie and it is memorable and that's how a testament to the score and i do love uh some segments later on in the uh the film as well specifically what's the name of this one track um the hand of fate is kind of uh, the climactic moments 
and it takes that you know creepy uh you know very staccato scale opening track and uh it kind of works that into a very cathartic sound so like you said they take the main theme and use it in a different way um and it almost sounds it sounds a little john williams-esque that when uh you know the water starts falling over and uh, um mel gibson is uh, out in the yard with his son and it's you know it's it's very spielbergian in general so i think it, it fits quite well and uh yeah certainly one of my uh favorite scores and just thinking about horror movie scores in general lately I mean, uh, a cure for wellness is a good exception, but like a lot of the, uh, you know, the James Wan Blumhouse horror movies, their scores aren't very melodic, not like something like signs is like signs. The music in signs has a great melody and it just also happens to be very unsettling and creepy. I feel like a lot of horror movie scores nowadays, it's just like almost just like a cacophony of sounds. Is that is that the right phrase? Cacophony? <laughs> yeah, the cacophonous sound. Caco- just yeah, like, yeah, just, yeah. Just, just an, an assault via noise. Yeah, just like <laughs> a very, you know, just pairing things that don't sound good together with each other. I feel like insidious kind of, not yeah, that it discordant. was the first to do that, but yeah. yeah. Um, and this, uh, this movie's got a very creepy score, but it sounds just amazing. I mean, if you're ever at a house party and you know anybody hands you their phone and says hey put something on man you gotta go and put on james newton howard's opening title track of signs that will get the party going (laughs) you know that's actually like a personal nightmare of mine Um, people (laughs) asking me to be in charge of music because like you you don't want to do that (laughs) like just you you don't want that's why you you gotta (laughs) lean hard into you either have to be like try and please everybody or just lean hard into just like alienating everybody just piss people off well i remember being like kind of irritated at a halloween party a couple years ago because like they're putting on like halloween kind of halloween themed music but like you know i i used to work at a thrift store where like halloween was the the biggest time of year and we had like our halloween playlist and it was all just like 80s horror movie tracks Mm -hmm. and stuff and it's like fright night and the the disco theme from was it friday night uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, mm-hmm. and, and like all that, kind of, and like Alice Cooper, like the man behind the mask. And yeah, yeah. It's like all that kind of shit, and I'm like, I don't know any of your songs. <laughs> to be frank, they all sound kind of lame to me. <laughs> but, but um, I'm actually really glad you brought up James Newton Howard because um, I mean, like I said, he contributed to the Dark Knight score, um, and Batman Begins. It was a collaboration between him and Hans Zimmer. And yet he never gets talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a fantastic composer that I I don't know anyone who ever cites him as a favorite. But um, when I see his name attached to the credits on a film, my, my ears literally perk up because he usually puts in fantastic work. Um, but he's not a household name. Um, but he's been working forever and he's done some great work. Um, I, I will swear to, to the day I die that... Uh, you can say all the shit you want about Waterworld. It's it's not that bad. It's like it's a it's an okay movie. It's not it's not terrible. It's just it's fine. <laughs> but the score is phenomenal. Like it has some of the most like action packed like heroic tracks of it of its era of mm-hmm. of the nineties. Um, and it, I think they used it for several movie trailers as well. And uh, also a uh, Primal Fear. It's a weird one, but I really like the score for that one too. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but 
for the life of me, I can't really remember the music from Signs other than the music they used for the trailers, which was, like you said, the typical horror movie stuff where it's like really abrasive strings. And um, so that's one that I'm going to I'm going to have to put on my list as something to go back and listen to, because I've oh, never yeah. listened to the score for it isolated before. But like I said, I generally appreciate the man's work. And uh, I think uh, uh, he did uh, Unbreakable as well, right? I think he did Unbreakable in the Village, and I don't know if he did any other. Like I don't know if he did Lady in the Water, but he was, you know, him and M Night. They were, they were in bed together for a little bit there. I think. Yeah. Yeah. I, I want to say you're right, and uh, Unbreakable for sure. Like, mm-hmm. I I was that one idiot in the crowd, uh, not in the theater, but like on the couch or whatever, watching um, Split when the theme for Unbreakable came back. I was like, I know what's happening. And everyone else is like, "What? Why are you so excited?" It's like because I know what's happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because the music's telling me. And they're like, "Oh, well, you're one of those guys, huh? That remembers <laughs> shit." And it's like, "Yes, I am one of those guys. I don't have kids yet to rob me of all my memories." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Unbreakable has a great score. Also, um, I think Absolutely. just for me, Signs. I've seen it way more, so it just like it's like putting on a nice pair of gloves. It just feels right at home. I'd like to come back to it because I think I only saw it. Um, in the theater when it first came out, and mm-hmm. I really liked it. But yeah. um, my my friend, uh, old college buddy, uh, he has the best story for seeing signs because uh, he saw it a hundred percent blind. Like, oh, really? He knew nothing about it. He just saw the, like the the word signs on the marquee, and he was like, You're, "Like wow. one ticket for signs." And he went in to see it without seeing a single commercial. He didn't know who made it. So he didn't know, you know, this is the guy that did the movie with the twist or whatever. <laughs> he just walked into the theater and he saw it and he said it was it was amazing because he was yeah. alone and, and like that, it, it's it was terrifying and he loved it. That is the dream. That is the dream. Like truly, like I mean, just, I'm just imagining you're just sitting here, you're watching this, you're like, okay, just some good music. Okay, okay, seems like this might be a horror movie, but I don't know. I guess I don't know yet. <laughs> Oh, okay. Uh, there could Mel have been Gibson. a Christian movie for all he knew, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's Joaquin Phoenix. He's been in a few things so far. It's only 2002, but he, I liked him in Gladiator. He's a cool guy. You know, I, I can just, oh, that's just, that's the dream. That is the dream. Ah, there's a naked brown man in the cornfields. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but that's, that's awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to check that score out. Yeah, I, yeah. Like I said, I've never listened to it on its own, but, um, I suppose the ball is to me. Um, so, hmm, what am I going to go with? Got to go with your gut. Go with your gut. Okay, well, this is going to be a twofer. All right. And uh, this is a composer who, he's a huge name, but unfortunately he passed away um, a while back. So he's he's on my list of like, oh, man, I missed that guy. Jerry Goldsmith, who I actually did not pull anything aside for, is probably the top of that list i miss jerry goldsmith that man Mm -hmm. that man put in work (laughs) over decades and i I think i've said on previous episodes uh, when i think of the word adventure in musical form i think of jerry goldsmith and um if like aside from the rambo movies still using his music from time to time um i you know I, i i don't i don't think we get any of his flavor anymore these days um but i'm not going to be talking about him i uh i'm going to be talking about james uh, horner uh who i have two movies here pulled aside um i have glory uh which he composed 
and I have the Alien Anthology box set. Um, he did the score for Aliens, which, uh, because I'm a boy of a certain age, uh, Aliens is basically the best movie ever made. <laughs> and uh, the music had quite a bit to do with why it resonated with me so much when I was young. Um, both of these movies have fantastic scores, and it just so happens they're both fantastic movies on their own. Um, Glory is a, it's kind of an interesting case because a choir is one of those things that I, I have a weird appreciation for because I, I'm often skeptical as to whether it's going to work or not. Like sometimes it can be off-putting where it's like, mm, I don't think that's warranted. <laughs> it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. those guys can go home. Like, like I, I think the instruments can, can hold, hold everything together just fine. We don't, we don't need the, <laughs> like we don't need all that shit. It's, it's like, you know, it's an epic movie, but it's not that epic. Uh, but in the case of Glory, oh my God, it works beautifully. Um, I forget. I think it's like it's a boys' choir. I think I I forget which one. It, it doesn't really matter. But um, they recruited like a boys' choir to do most of the score, um, and their singing is just it's absolutely beautiful. And the the tone of the score is is so perfect for the subject matter because it's a it's a civil war story, and it has this somber like kind of melancholic tune to it where it's like it does have plenty of heroic tracks and movements where it's like you know they they do have some heroic brass on there from time to time but for the most part it's it's almost like something you'd play at a funeral like a military funeral or something and the opening track in particular kind of highlights that mood and uh, if i remember correctly the movie's kind of bookended by the same track um it's a very 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 repetitive score in a lot of ways mm-hmm. um and there aren't that many tracks on the soundtrack, as far as I know, except like well, the official release, not like the expanded version. Um, but it never grates on you because because it's so gorgeous to listen to. Yeah. Um, and when I was very young, the the kind of like climax music, I think the track is called Charging Fort Wagner. It was like that was that was the word epic in, in music form. Yeah. It's such an amazing piece of music. And uh pretty cool scene (laughs) Um, it's just it's an awesome movie that um i i know it's beloved but at the same time i don't hear it talked about very often and uh for me it was like a day one 4k blu-ray purchase because like as soon as i saw it announced i was like fuck an excuse to see glory again like i I don't think i'd seen it since uh i was forced to in like middle school (laughs) yeah Um, pepsi presents glory (laughs) (laughs) i forget who they got to introduce the film but i I distinctly remember it was sponsored by pepsi nice nice. (laughs) because because a movie about the civil war is definitely where you want uh you know your soda sponsorships to be (laughs) well i mean you got to fight the war with a smile brad (laughs) oh yeah yeah But um, the other one, though, that I mentioned is, of course, James Cameron's Aliens. Um, they came out pretty close together. I think, like, Glory was probably after, but Aliens was definitely 86. And, of course, James Cameron. And uh, it's kind of funny. I read up on it. Like, I didn't I didn't do much research for what we're doing today. Like, um, But I did research this one because I was curious. And apparently, uh, he and James Cameron didn't get along. Like, really? Um, and it just so happens that uh, I just I was in the middle of building a, a model kit and I just put on a movie in the background something that I wasn't planning on watching just something to have on in the background and I put on Humanoids from the Deep 
which is a Roger Corman film. And it just so happens, the sound, I was like, that sounds like James Horner. <laughs> I was like, that sounds like Aliens. And then I, I, I checked the credits at the end of the movie, and I was like, holy shit. Nice. You mean they both worked for James, like for Roger Corman? That's probably how they met, honestly. Yeah, I guess so, yeah, yeah. That's and cool, there though. are some tracks on Humanoids from the Deep that sound like, you know, the skeleton for what would turn out to be aliens. And mm-hmm. I, I guess the disagreement between the two of them came in the form of time, where James Horner was asking for more time to complete the score. He felt it was an unfinished product, and he was upset about it. And James Cameron was like, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, especially, especially now, like in retrospect, it's like, you know, when James Cameron says it's fine, it's probably fine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's fair. He's 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 made a couple of good movies. He's made a few bucks. You know, he usually knows what's good, and uh, I think it's kind of neat because it does at times feel like a slightly incomplete score because it it's kind of raw. Like it has a it has a weird sound to it that it sounds it sounds very raw and kind of raggedy at times. And there's a lot of like found instruments on there, like metal clanging and stuff. I, I think James Cameron just likes that, like mm-hmm. the brad fidel like terminator scores have that quality to them too um but holy shit the the score is wonderful like it's it covers all the material you need it to or it has plenty of suspense tracks it has plenty of like outright like like you said like traditional horror score stuff like when the face huggers are skittering around the music goes fucking ape shit (laughs) um but then like the colonial marines tracks are like now it's like oh shit this is like a earnest like action track and it's it's like the most rousing battle music that you can imagine um but you get all of that in one movie um and it needs to be said the uh uh i think it's called bishop's countdown is the name of the track um speaking of which uh, there, i think there's a a track that is called queen to bishop and I was like, That's "Oh good. my god!" That is like, good. if yeah, if if you had that opportunity to name a track after that moment, yes, you would do that. That is good. Queen Division. <laughs> I was like, "Oh shit!" <laughs> <laughs> but um, Bishop's Countdown. Um, if I was to pick like one track that like you gotta hear, like isolated from the movie, like look it up because it. Um, the closing bits of it, I want to say, were used for countless mov- movie trailers and even like video game trailers and stuff because it's just like perfect, like dramatic countdown music. Um, but yeah, I-, I love the scores for both of these movies. Yeah. Um, do you have any word? Do you have any inside scoop uh, on who's doing the score for Avatar 2 now that uh, Mr. I do Horner not. is no longer with us? Yeah, uh, he did. He did complete the score for Avatar, and it's unfortunately not an amazing one. But yeah, I have a theory actually that that's part of why Avatar was as successful as it was, though, because mm-hmm. it, it it was you know visually breathtaking but not challenging. Like the the material and the characters are all pretty pretty simple, and even the music like they're not trying to knock your socks off. It's just like it's it's adequate. Um, yeah. James but, yeah, Horner. It's kind of unfortunate that that came late in his career. Yeah, he knows he knows what to do though. He saw Avatar. He said, "I don't need to go hard on this one. This thing's already going to make two billion dollars." Then you know, a decade before, he saw Titanic and he said, "We need to get a banger of a ballad in here. Let me get Celine Dion. James, we need this for the movie. This is going to take it over the top." And that it did. That it did. That song was everywhere. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was that's actually a really fun story that, you know, despite their disagreement a decade prior, he came back for he was asked to come back for Titanic. And yeah, um, all, all my research pointed to him being the reason why um, what my heart will go on. Mm hmm. Uh, polluted the airwaves for years to come oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, because he he composed the the music and the lyrics for it and he said oh i got this canadian gal that'll sing it for us and james cameron's like i don't want it to be that kind of movie and he's like it it's that kind of movie jim just just let it be just let let it happen and he's like fucking fine and then who like who who knew that it would blow up that big yeah really yeah yeah yeah, I do miss uh, do miss James Horner. He uh, he had some great scores. He definitely did. That he did. Yeah. But um, enough about him, though, Brad. <laughs> well, maybe you have one of his too. But uh, what what else you got? All right. Well, let's move on to um, somebody. You know, we were talking about James Horner, Jerry Goldsmith. Let's move on to somebody who's still living, still making scores. Um, and let's go with. Uh, this movie, I think, has an underrated score. I don't think I've never heard anybody talk about the score for this movie, and uh, this is an underrated composer who I think only in the last few years he's really been getting the recognition he deserves. That is, the composer is Mr. Carter Burwell, and the film is one of my all-time favorites, which could be an influence why I love the score so much. Uh, in Bruges from 2008. Now, this uh, film. The film in general, like, uh, you know, it did come out. I think I saw it in high school, maybe, maybe, maybe middle school. No, it must have been high school. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of hit at a good time. It's, you know, about hitmen. It's bloody. It's darkly comedic. A lot of, you know, foul language. And every so often <laughs> I, I, I think like, man, that's just such a typical movie like a high schooler would like. This movie's not going to hold up, but every time I go back to it, it holds up. I love the film. And part of it is because it does have all those things, the Tarantino-esque comedy, you know, the, the, the violence, the hitmen, you know, talking about their everyday lives together while on a job. But it is very... Um, dark as well it's very haunting it's very melancholy it's very melancholic i should say uh and i think part of it is the score by carter burwell which is for for the most of the part of the film it's very simple it's just a lot of it is kind of just piano like there, you know there's some accompaniment to it but it's a lot of piano that's the main instrument for it and it's very haunting very just somber and sad all it sounds like something you'd hear at a funeral for the most part and but I think it is very catchy and it is something that gets stuck in your head and, you know, that theme kind of stays with you. But then there are a few moments specifically towards the end of the film where it goes from that sort of haunting moment into just a banger. There's one sequence where there's a, a chase sequence between Colin Farrell and Ray Fiennes that uh, Carter Burwell just whips out the electric guitar. He whips out his Stratocaster and just starts shredding and like just like like the the shift from one to the other is like very apparent um, and it very much calls attention to itself, but I think it works. And overall, I think it's a great score. Um, I, I don't know any tracks uh, by name, um, but over, I just, I, I really enjoy it. And uh, yeah, I think Carter Burwell, he's underrated. He's done scores for a lot of great movies. Uh, I mean, Fargo, he's got some great moments in the score, but uh, I feel like only in the last, like he's only gotten nominated for Oscars. Not that this is telling of, quality but in the last few years he's only gotten his first oscar nominations and 
I mean, he's been doing great work since at least the mid-90s. So glad to see at least some people coming around on the guy. Yeah, um, he is underrated for sure. Um, and funny enough, uh, the way I often prep for these Tales from the Shelf episodes is uh, I go through my shelf and I uh, I pull movies like halfway out mm-hmm. as like a reminder to myself, like, eh, that might fit and that might fit too. And then like five minutes before I, I get on the <laughs> Skype call with you, I, I just yank out whatever feels right. Yeah. Um, and it just so happens that uh, I'm looking behind me and uh, The Jackal. Uh, mm. is one of the movies I, I did not pull, but I it was on my mind, um, and he did the score for it. Um, have you seen that one, Brad? Uh, I have not, no. Uh, it's a it's a fun 90s spy thriller. Yeah. I mean, if you can stomach Richard Gere and his phony Irish accent, um, I think it's a lot of fun. Uh, you know, Jack Black's in there. Very A baby Jack Black is in there. And, mm, okay, uh, all right. Get to see Bruce Willis put on a whole bunch of different disguises and you know be the bad guy which is pretty rare especially in the 90s um yeah i I happen to like the movie and the score for it is it's actually a huge reason why um because i i don't know if uh in bruges is also kind of repetitive um but the score for the jackal is it's like mostly one or two key themes but they change the instrumentation from scene to scene and the mood shifts pretty dramatically just based on that change alone yeah i feel like carter burwell does that for a lot of his movies i feel like that's kind of his thing um because even like a lot of the coen brothers movies like you could there's a few main themes that you can pick out but yeah he, he changes things up ever so slightly for each uh each track and yeah, Bruges is like that too no i i actually have a strong appreciation for that um, I don't know what it is like if if music is composed well enough um, I don't mind hearing many 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 different variations of the same piece over and over and over again just it's kind of soothing actually yeah. <laughs> it's cozy um, but it has to be done well like, like, like otherwise otherwise it's um I don't know if you've ever played the arcade game uh, Marvel versus Capcom 2 no <laughs> um, but I've, I think I've brought this up on the podcast probably two weeks in a row now but um the character select screen for that is an example of doing it wrong uh, from a <laughs> musical standpoint um, because this game has over 50 characters you have to pick three to make a team so it takes a minute if you don't know your way around the character select screen and uh, the character selects music consists of gonna take you for a ride da 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 gonna take you for a ride da 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 and then it's just over and over and over again yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's like a it's like a barely five second loop and it just Yikes. goes until the end of time and that would be an example of doing it wrong maybe yeah. next time don't take anyone for a ride <laughs> um <laughs> but that's really cool though that you bring up in bruce though because i've never seen it oh um, my my brother loves it kyle loves it and uh, kyle has been talking about um doing it next month oh so, yeah. Now please. I have another reason, like because I didn't know Carter Burwell did the score, so mm-hmm. now I have another reason to be hyped about In Bruges. So that's a that's awesome. Yeah, that definitely got to check it out. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I guess ball is to me, and uh, on the subject of uh, repetitive uh, scores, um, seems like a pretty good transition here. Uh, I have a kind of little known movie that um, is very special to me personally. Um, this would be Departures, 
Um, this is a this was the like Japanese Academy Award winner um, for best foreign language film in uh what year did it come out? It was probably like the 2008, I think. Um, I recognize the poster. Yeah, it's it's dull as dirt, but yeah, it's pretty. Yeah. it's pretty recognizable. I don't. Yeah, I don't know why it's. I'm like, yeah, I've seen that before. <laughs> yeah, it's just Japanese man in the mountains with a cello. <laughs> but, um, the title is Okuripito, uh, aka Departures, and it's directed by Yojiro Takita. And uh, yeah, like I said, Academy Award winner, best foreign language film, and the score is done by one Joe Hisaishi. Uh, who is most notable for working with uh, Beat Takeshi, or Takeshi Beat, whatever way you want to say it, um, and uh, Studio Ghibli, um, Hayao Miyazaki. He's like his go-to composer. Um, so like My Neighbor Totoro and like Spirited Away and almost all of those movies. Uh, he is a phenomenal composer. Um, I've described some of his his scores as being like, irritatingly beautiful mm-hmm. where it's like god damn it like <laughs> like how did you do that <laughs> like some of the some of the tracks from spirited away and like totoro and like totoro special to me personally but like spirited away in particular the music is just like emotionally very powerful stuff it's very potent um but one characteristic of some of his scores is they're very repetitious um, and this one serves as an example of that. And uh, as indicated by the cover art, uh, cello serves as like a strong foundation for most of the music in the film. Um, there's several sequences where the title character is, a, or the main character rather, um, plays a cello piece uh, that's woven into the film uh, in such a beautiful way where it's like, it's almost like a, a piece of music um, designed to evoke like emotional memory. So like it's symbolic in the film, like where you you'll actually peer into the character's head, where like when he's playing the music, he's like recovering bits of himself, and uh, by extension, we the viewer learn more about him. So it's like it's kind of like asking you to reach within yourself while you're watching the film a little bit. Um, and holy shit, it's some of the most beautiful music I've heard in a movie. Like honestly, th- this is. This is maybe the movie I point to when someone asks me that question. Like, what's what's the prettiest music you can think of from a movie? It's like, oh, that one. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, especially, like, by the time you, you get to, like, the midway point of the movie where we have a montage where that main theme is, like, really blown up with a, f- a full orchestra and we get, like, a f- kind of the full version of it. Like, it's really kind of a unifying moment and piece in the movie. And... uh they of course revisit it for the end credits and it needs to be said this this movie is about uh like japanese funeral rituals it's a very quirky subject but that's that's something i've noticed actually with um i don't know what it is about japanese media but there's a lot of stories about um hobbies or activities or rituals and just devoting and the entirety of a story to just learning the ins and outs like every like the minutiae of a really simple fucking thing yeah like that's how you can have an entire like hundred volume manga series about like model trains (laughs) (laughs) and shit like that and like baking bread and stuff like that so this is that but with funeral rituals um and uh the reason why this movie is special to me um is that i've seen maybe two movies in the (laughs) i saw a national treasure movie with my grandma Uh, i've seen maybe two or three movies in the theater with my uh, my grandma on my mom's side and this was one of them and like 
all my aunts and and her were all like super excited to take us all to the theater to see this because they're, they they're really up on their Japanese cinema and they're really excited the Japanese film won the Academy Award for best foreign film mm-hmm. so I got to go to the theater with my grandma who I never really get to do that with and like this is one of those movies that fucking makes you cry like every five minutes <laughs> <laughs> so so it was it was a heavy experience for me. Yeah. yeah um and i only just rewatched it like in actually in preparation for this recording because i like i've only seen it the one other time and i didn't disappoint i would highly recommend checking it out um especially uh because god damn it like we talked about this last time we talked brad um there's a category of attractiveness that qualifies as distractingly attractive yeah. And there's an actress in here that fits that category. <laughs> Hang on, Name I'm putting it on the top of my watch list right now. <laughs> Maybe you said the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, her name is Ryoko Hirosue, and uh, she was also maybe you've seen it actually. It's a Jean Reno movie called Wasabi. Mm-mm, I don't think so. It's that's one. That one's good too. Uh, okay, yeah. maybe check that out. But goddamn, it's like woman. Get off the screen! I can't. I can't pay attention to the dialogue, <laughs> and there's a lot of it. <laughs> yeah, nice, nice. Uh, so yeah, that's that's a bonus. So come for the music, stay for her uh, aquiline nose, because that's that's like as precious as gold in Japan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you can tell a lot of movies that uh, focus like mute where it's about music. Like they kind of have to bring it with a great score, because otherwise, you know, if you have a mediocre score in a movie about music that's not gonna fly. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I mean i remember mr holland's opus by the time you get to mr holland's opus at the end um i think michael Kamen composed the score for that movie could have been a little stronger mm-hmm. I, I actually really love michael Kamen. in fact i have a lot of his stuff pulled out but not with me like he's a composer i would definitely spotlight at some point um, but that that's kind of an example of like, you know, there's a lot of licensed music in this, but like not a whole lot of score in yeah. this film. <laughs> it's like, you know, anybody can like pay the fee to get the Beatles on their movie, but you know, actually putting really fantastic music on the score, that that takes a lot of time and effort, man. But yeah. 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 They stuck the landing though when it came to the music in this one for sure. And it, as far as I know, it's all original composition for the most part. Nice. Um, although I think they they uh, do a rendition of Ave Maria um, from one scene that's also quite be- beautiful. But uh, Joe Hisaishi, um, for sure, um, anytime you see his his name attached to a project, uh, you're in for at least a good time uh, with your ears. Mm-hmm. I mean, hey, Ave Maria, you know, if you're going to license one piece of music to put in your uh, movie about a cello player, I mean, that seems like a, a good choice. <laughs> well, no, Brad, the, the main thing to do is uh, every movie you make, and I hope you get to make some movies in your lifetime, Brad, um, put Amazing Grace in all of them. <laughs> you know, like, just just eat up that public domain shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gotta do it. Is it in the like, public domain? Is that why it's everywhere? I'm pretty sure Amazing Grace is in the public domain. I know Happy Birthday is not. I believe that at I, one point belonged to the Jackson estate. I think it re- just recently in the last few years did get put in the public domain, though. I think it did. Gobble that shit up, Brad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can use it. I think you can use it now. I've heard it at restaurants oh, now. So, Wow, we're saved. We can use Happy Birthday in our movies again. Finally. <laughs> and our YouTube clips. <laughs> <laughs> 
Ah, but uh, that's enough about uh, departures and Japanese Academy Award winners. Um, wh- what do you got, Brad? All right. Well, you know, the, the first few movies I talked about are uh, done by traditional composers where their main profession is they compose scores for music. But actually, a lot of the movies I have here are scores by people who aren't, uh, you know, it's not their day job. That's not their composing music. Uh, m- music for movies is not their day job. They might be in a band or something of that nature, and they just happen to occasionally compose some scores. And one of those composers is a Mr. Uh, Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, who he's the uh, lead guitarist of Radiohead, and I love me some Radiohead, one of my favorite bands. And um, maybe my love of Radiohead is fueled by Johnny Greenwood's association with Mr. Paul Thomas Anderson. He's done the scores for uh, There Will Be Blood, Inherent Vice, um, Phantom Thread, and... Maybe one other one I'm forgetting, but also the one I'm picking out is from 2012, The Master, starring uh, Joaquin, making another appearance again. Didn't even intend that. But um, I don't know. This this movie, I've always really liked it, but uh, it's taken a few watches for me to really love it. But I think part of the reason that it works so well, even if maybe the story doesn't 100% work for me, great performances. It looks amazing, and the score by Johnny Greenwood is so good. It's very minimal. It's very just uh, unnerving. Um, there are a few like tracks in it where it's kind of a li- little bit more of a traditional score with you know uh, an orchestral arrangement, but a lot of it and the stuff that stands out to me is there's uh, some tracks. I think one of them is called Able-bodied Seaman, and it's uh, set during a lot of the montages in the movie. And it's just, like, a bass and some, like, I don't even know what the instrument is, but some, like, percussion, like, some percussion instrument. And it, for a lot of it, it's just the uh, the bass and this percussion instrument. And it's so weird and unique sounding. But it, it's, like, genuinely, I think it's a great piece of music. And there's a lot of that in the film. And, um, I mean, I could have gone with Phantom Thread. I love the score for that as well. That is definitely more of a, like, classic sort of, you know, very, very classic score, like, you know, very old Hollywood almost-esque because it does take place in, like, 1950 or whatever. Um, but uh, I think the score for the master, I don't I don't think most people say it is his masterpiece, um, but I, uh, I think it's probably my favorite Johnny Greenwood score, and uh, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a good film. It's a good one. Uh, that's damn, Brad. That's another one I've I've had on my list for a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I've never actually seen The Master, but uh, PTA man, he uh, makes some fucking awesome films. Yeah, uh, <laughs> seriously. Like when it, when it comes to like acknowledging like just raw talent and ability in filmmaking, it's like you gotta tip your hat to that guy. Like he knows his way around filmmaking because um, every aspect of his films just feels so curated and precise. It's it's masterful. I feel like a lot of his films have pretty amazing music too. Like the the soundtrack to Boogie Nights is just so good. Um, Magnolia with the Amy Mann songs. There's that drone that plays in the the like the darker portions of yeah. Boogie Nights. The, yeah. That that's the score as far as I know. Not not like a licensed piece of music that. Um, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That movie's packed to the gills with licensed music, but yeah, definitely the score isn't as is 
as apparent as it is in some other films, but when it shows up, it, it's noticeable and it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I need to see the master and Johnny Greenwood as a composer is not known to me, nor is the band Radiohead. Um, I have no background with Radiohead, but I do know that they, as a band, get really irritated with people like showering them with praise all the time <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, uh, yeah apparently a lot of people hold them in high the highest of regard like they're often cited as the best rock band ever basically mm-hmm. um, yeah they're definitely one of my favorites um and you can definitely tell especially as they progress as a band because i know uh tom york he did the score for suspiria so they've a lot of them have branched out into like doing scores and you can, as you listen to their music, you can get the sense like, yeah, this, you know, there are, it almost kind of sounds like I'm listening to a film score with, you know, lyrics attached to it or something like it's very uh, challenging at times, but always uh, very interesting and very layered. And um, I think I want to say the drummer of uh, Radiohead, he's done some scores as well, but I think Johnny Greenwood out of them has, Definitely had the most successful solo work. Um, he also did the score for uh, You Were Never Really Here, another Joaquin movie. I mean, <laughs> we might have to change the episode title to uh, something about Joaquin Phoenix because uh, I don't think I have any more Joaquin in my pile, but you never know what could come up. <laughs> Honestly, geez. <laughs> I mean, Gladiator. <laughs> but um, that's kind of neat, though, because it's like um, – not only is it like a someone from a band paired with a director, it's like it makes me think of uh, David Fincher and Trent Reznor. It's like it's a working relationship of sorts, where it's like, oh, I, I guess you're basically just a film composer now, but you yeah. don't really work for everyone. We just work with your buddy Dave. <laughs> but um, that's another. He's another good composer of films. Yeah, you may want to hold sure. off on talking about that. That might be coming. Okay, out. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll leave that open. We won't get into that. But <laughs> um, but I will have to check out. I'll probably just check out that movie, honestly, mm-hmm. um, and then I'll check out the score. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I listen to music before I watch a movie, but that's one that, you know, uh, based on PTA's other movies, it's like, you know, I think the movie itself will be just fine. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I would think say I'll get it all. it's probably his most challenging movie for, like, a lot of people. Um, so I can kind of see why, like, when it came out, it, you know, it didn't quite hit the level of acclaim that some of his work does. Um, but I mean, I, I think, you know, the more I've sat with it, the more I like the whole package, but I mean, I'll, I'll say, bring it back to Joaquin. I think his performance in this film, easily his best performance. And that's saying something. And I, I would put it in a list of my favorite performances of all time. He just is out of the park. Good in this. He is amazing in the master. So like people, I mean, he won best actor for Joker, I mean, that's the joke right there that he didn't win for the master. That is the joke. Well, that happens all too often with the Academy Awards. You know, the yeah. right guy, wrong time, basically. Yep. Yep. Like it, it, it happens, you know. But um, it's funny. Uh, Kyle is, like, the biggest fan of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And uh, I I forget if I've asked him about the master. So if he hasn't seen that, um, damn. Like, yeah. We, I guess we both need to get on that. So I'll he, have to ask He's great in it that. as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a hell of a pairing. Just on paper, it's like, damn, like, why haven't I seen that? (laughs) (laughs) Bad, Trevor. Um, Well, uh, I suppose Ball is to me, and uh, you you made an allusion to the idea of, like, like, the score for a film 
being like an experience unto itself like like kind of like you're you're listening to it and it challenges you but it, it kind of just the auditory experience alone serves as a very full experience unto itself like without the film um so i figure that's a decent transition point to talk about a composer who has also passed away unfortunately and this guy's also very high on my list of motherfuckers that i miss um so this would be a uh, basil Poladoris. Um, and I have a short stack of films here. I think I actually have a couple of other movies that he scored somewhere. So this isn't all of them. But um, he, of course, did Paul Verhoeven's Verhoeven. I'm saying that correctly. Uh, <laughs> Robocop, which um, right next to Aliens is, in my book, one of the best movies ever. Um, he also did Paul Verhoeven's uh, Starship Troopers. And he also did Steven Seagal's only directorial film uh, on <laughs> Deadly Ground. <laughs> the music's nice. actually pretty good um, in that movie, despite the movie being hilariously bad in the best possible way. Um, but the one score that I wanted to spotlight of his is, of course, Conan the Barbarian. Um, I say Conan, but I know a lot of people say Conan. I prefer Conan. But um, yeah, he did the score for both Conan the Barbarian and The Destroyer. Um, and these were, I think they had two different directors, but uh, John Milius directed Conan the Barbarian, and that's the one I probably want to talk about the most, um, because this is an example of like an operatic score um, for a movie that really doesn't have much dialogue. Um, Arnold was at that stage in his career where his Austrian accent was wasn't with the, the people in Hollywood. They went they weren't ready for it yet. <laughs> <laughs> they were just there for the muscles. <laughs> um, so the dialogue really wasn't a key part of the storytelling of the film. It was more just mood and just kind of like uh, like mythic storytelling. So like everything's told in very broad strokes, and the music kind of tells most of the story. Um, it's a, I think it's a very, very good movie in most regards. It is a little hokey at times, mostly having to do with like production values. But, um, I will say this much, the, the audio commentary for it is hilarious, um, because it's John Milius and, uh, John Milius who fancies himself like Teddy Roosevelt on a surfboard. Like, uh, there's a documentary about John Milius just called Milius. That's certainly worth your time. Highly recommended because he's a very interesting guy in Hollywood. Um, but it's him talking about his movie like it's it's the best thing that's ever been made like it's like this movie's the bible (laughs) (laughs) and then you have Arnold who like doesn't even remember the movie and is talking about it like it's a piece of shit and he's like and there's just these long pauses where John Milius will ask him questions and he'll just respond like yeah (laughs) like like, whatever John (laughs) um but yeah, the, the score for it um, is like from the opening moments. I, I, I'm not going to say the whole thing right now, but um, the opening narration delivered by Mako is inc- it's, uh, it's the stuff of legend. And then as soon as the percussion kicks in, you're in for a wild ride. And um, this like everything about the imagery that you that comes to mind of like a barbarian hero in like a medieval wasteland. It's like, yeah, this this music is that. And like they they cover such a, a wide range of territory with the score and it, it's very very big but never reaches too far to the point where it comes across as like cheesy even though like the imagery in the film looks cheesy from time to time the music always feels very classy and dignified and um you get some of the most rousing battle tracks that come to mind and you get some meditative tracks and 
really, really, really strong themes. And most of them carry over to the second film, but mm, it just doesn't have the same level of care put into it. Um, but it is also a very, very good score. And kind of similar to, like, um, we didn't really talk about this, but one thing I noticed about the Pirates of the Caribbean theme is that as fantastic as that first iteration of Captain Jack Sparrow's theme is, um, I actually don't think it's a complete piece of music until you get to, like, the third movie. Um, there's a there's the swelling piece of portion of the music that kicks in when uh, the two hot British people kiss each other. Oh. <laughs> uh, Orlando Bloom and Keira Knightley? Sure. <laughs> um, the lady with the lips and the guy without the lips. <laughs> uh, yeah. When when they finally have their big smooch on the on the boat, like there's this particular theme that kicks in that's like the love theme of the of the whole trilogy at that point, that kind of serves as like the last piece of that puzzle, if you ask me. Or it wasn't until they had a couple of iterations of of the main theme that they got to like the true theme. Um, and in some regards, you kind of have that with Conan the Destroyer, where the the opening theme of the movie. Kind, kind of adds just a little extra something to the main theme from the previous one. And it's like, you know, even the, even though this movie's not as good as the first one, at least we got that out of it. Because like, um, upon repeat listenings, it's like, man, it, you know, listening to the score just doesn't sound right without that, that extra little bit of oomph. Have those, uh, have those Pirates films been announced for 4K yet? I'm just trying to look it up now. Like, that's... I. I want to do a Pirates of the Caribbean original trilogy rewatch here. Uh, I did that uh, a while back, like a few months ago. And in fact, um, it wasn't available on Disney Plus until a few months ago. But the the most recent Pirates is actually one I haven't seen. And I know that's not that's not Gore Verbinski, but um, I'll watch it just to just to watch it. I haven't heard it thing about it like good or bad but i'll still yeah. check it out but um you, i mean we've talked about this on previous episodes it sounds like disney's not too keen on the idea of physical media so it would i don't imagine 4k is in the cards for now um, mm-hmm. but those would certainly be fantastic candidates for the format because like even to this day holy shit two and three look amazing and mm-hmm. I, Brad, uh, Kyle and I were talking about this when we were talking about the War of the Worlds. We were talking about like how budget is allocated in in movies. How how is Pirates of the Caribbean four, like the worst looking of maybe the entire series? How is that the most expensive movie ever made? Yeah, well, I mean, there's really only <laughs> one explanation, and it's uh, no gore. He didn't do that one, I believe, and that's. I mean, that's got to be it. I don't. Even, I can't even think who did that one. I don't know who did it, but it doesn't look great. <laughs> it does. It, it doesn't really look doesn't. great. This, like from a special effects standpoint, it's not. It's not even anywhere near as ambitious as the third one, if you ask me. Um, but somehow, like if you look it up, apparently it is like one of, if not the most expensive movie like ever made. <laughs> that is interesting. That is. Interesting. It's bizarre. I can't. I can't place why. And like, I mean, did they did they get Johnny Depp that much wine? Like, <laughs> I feel like he he his budget for the fourth one. I feel like I may have heard that it went up significantly to bring him back for a fourth and a fifth. Um, but I mean, you know, they added Penelope Cruz, but aside from that, I mean, it's not like you know they didn't get um, how did it, it's not like Tom Cruise joined the franchise or something. So yeah, it's 
I don't know. It's uh, Rob Marshall directed it, and this guy he just he just doesn't know how to do it. He doesn't he's he's doesn't have the talent in him. I mean, not that he's uh, not that he's a hack or anything. I mean, he's done quite a few big films, but uh, he's not a, he's not that kind of name though. He's just kind of a, a work. He puts in a workman's effort. That's what yeah. I think of. You know, yeah, I think yeah, like a Brett Ratner kind of guy. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But he's not Disney's, a hack. But he, Disney's he'll, version. He'll of get Ratner. it done. Yeah, he'll he'll get it done, but he's not going to put his stamp on it or yeah. anything. But I mean, the only the only legitimate answer that comes to mind is fuckery, just straight up fuckery. Yeah. <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's how you blow up a budget that big. Um, but what kind of fuckery? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. But anyway, uh, that was Conan the Barbarian and yeah. Basil Polidorus. Um, I've never so, I've never seen that. By the way, I might. I'm, you haven't? No, no. I, it really, it's just not not a movie that interests me much um but now that you say the score is worth uh checking out maybe it'll kind of give me that nudge to finally check out the film uh I mean, it is hard to come back to because like i said from a visual standpoint especially it is yeah. kind of hokey like none of none of the like fight choreography or, or set design is that remarkable by today's standards um i would say just like put on the score because yeah. like the reason why I transitioned to this one as a talking point was, um, it is an example of a movie that is nothing without its music. And if you listen to the the score in isolation, you do get the movie. Like it kind of follows all the emotional movements of the film in sequence, so you get a pretty good feel for at least the emotional tonality of the film uh, throughout from front to back. Um, and yeah, far and away, the score is the true star of the show. Um, well, except maybe Arnold. It did like catapult him to bigger and better things. But yeah. um, John Milius, mostly known as a writer, it was like one of his passion projects. Um, that and some, I think it was like Fat Day something or other. He, he made a surfing movie. He's He was a surfing enthusiast and very strange guy. And he, he wrote a lot of, wrote a lot of like really aggro movies like Red Dawn and like a lot of sean connery rest in peace a lot mm-hmm. of his speeches yeah, apparently yeah. he had a, a clause in his contract for a lot of his films which was like i'll do the film but only if i get some speeches <laughs> <laughs> and john has to write them <laughs> good sean connery that's a good one it's practiced you pushy <laughs> don't be a pushy write the write the speech <laughs> i like it i like it yes <laughs> yeah. uh but yeah, um, I would I would recommend the score over the movie though. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned yeah. the score. The score is the star of the show. You sh- they should have just put uh, instead of putting Arnold on the poster, they should have just put like the the sheet music on the poster. See if that'll uh, <laughs> sell, sell the film. <laughs> I mean, that's one way of going about it. But you know, the, the Austrian abs and the lady in the fur bikini probably. I want to say that was maybe the right call, Brad. Uh, teach their own. <laughs> teach their own. <laughs> Uh, well, anyway, um, ball is to you, Brad. What do you got next? All right. Well, this one, um, I, yeah, honestly, I'm trying to think. I, I feel like I don't have that much to say about this, even though this might be maybe my favorite score of all time, and we've kind of already hinted at it. Uh, Trent Reznor, Atticus Ross, going with The Social Network, which I it, it's been a while since I've listened to it, but I would say for a, several years after this came out, I listen to this score so much. I think more than any film that I can personally think of, it is a score that completely 
is able to stand on its own and you can listen to it outside of the movie and it is great. I mean, you know, uh, you know, very synthy, very interesting. Uh, and I don't know if I can't think did Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, was this their first like movie score? I can't think of any before this, but I don't want to say it was their first cause I didn't look it up, but certainly after this, you know, they've continued to work with Fincher. They've done a few other things as well. And I like pretty much all their scores that I've seen. Um, but not only is this great to listen to, uh, you know, I think it fits the film very well for a film about, you know, a, a, a digital uh, cha- change in technology and a change in the way we live. I think it was a very influential score. And I, I feel like even to this day, there's so many scores that you can tell copied off of this and were influenced by, you know, the, the, the synth beats of this and you know, for the whole like 2010s, I feel like we were getting just ripoffs of the social network score. Um, but that's because it, it really is great. And um, yeah, it's definitely one that I, uh, it's got a special place in my heart. Uh, I, I do love the film and uh, I mean, I, I like Nine Inch Nails a lot. They're, I don't like quite as much as Radiohead, but I do like Nine Inch Nails. And uh, yeah, so always cool to see. Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross do a score together. But I will say, I feel like their David Fincher collaborations, I mean, I feel like they've kind of steadily gone down. Not that, not that any of them are bad, but uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. I think they are doing the score for Mank, so we'll have to see what they uh, what they do for that. Yeah, it does look like he's working on Mank. Um, mm-hmm. And... I could be wrong here, but it looks like uh, Reznor, maybe his first soundtrack was the score for Natural Born Killers. Really? An Oliver oh. Stone film in, in 94. So that was Interesting. Uh, that was like, you know, in the thick of it for Nine Inch Nails business. But Now, what, um, what, did he actually do the score or is he just like, is Nine Inch Nails on the soundtrack though? Uh, he produced the soundtrack. Okay. Okay. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that refers to, mm-hmm. um, but he also worked on David Lynch's Lost Highway a couple of years after in '97. Yeah, I know Nine Inch Nails. They have a song on that. It's a good. It's, it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, One Hour Photo also, and I actually mm-hmm. that 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 tracks like my my ear remembers a bit of that flavor. Um, yeah, I I actually like the Nine Inch Nails quite a bit, and Trent Reznor is a composer. Um, when he's associated with David Fincher, it seems like they they get each other. Like yeah, they contribute to each other's products pretty pretty solidly. Um, funny enough, I I I really liked the Social Network, but I only saw it the one time. Um, I can't remember the music precisely, but I remember the feel of it very well. Mm-hmm. And I want to say even even our buddy Hans, Hansy Hans, um, even he maybe lifted a little bit of that flavor for like some of the more low key elements of the Man of Steel yeah soundtrack and you're i think you're right like a little bit of that flavor kind of creeped into like the 2010s and you know handful of years thereafter Mm -hmm. um and yeah this score from what i'm remembering and i could be totally wrong i I remember it having kind of like a a little bit of like a creepy like melancholic flavor to it but also like almost like triumphant at times but yeah it because it has that dour quality to it, it it's such a mixed emotion that it it's challenging, like like you said about other scores we've talked about. Yeah, there's a good variety to it. The, I mean, yeah, like you said, there are a lot of like kind of dark, you know, very somber songs on the the soundtrack. But the one I I wish I'd looked it up beforehand. But the the song, the track that is going when 
I think it's it's been a while since I've seen the movie, but it, it's like a montage of them, uh, like kind of coding the f- their first website they launch in their dorm room, mixed like cut intercut with uh, this like frat party where they're bringing in women on this bus, and that track, I probably that just pops into my head. I would say at least once a week, just randomly I'll be doing something and I'll just like start like to that beat of that track. Cause it's so good. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I love the score. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to listen to this, this one in isolation for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, man, you're giving me a hearty list to <laughs> tear into this week. Um, but that's one I'm also excited to check out. Cause I, I do remember having positive thoughts about it. Um, but I just haven't heard it since what, 2010. Mm-hmm. So, what damn 10 years <laughs> um but yeah i mean david fincher is such a fantastic filmmaker it shouldn't be a problem for me to revisit the film and the score it's more relevant now than ever <laughs> uh, yeah so i mean good timing um that's definitely one i'm gonna check out though and yeah i'm really glad that you you stepped up and you know declared something like kind of a favorite of yours because that you know that's something on catching up on cinema anyway we don't do very often yeah yeah (laughs) we're kind of shy about it um but that's that's very bold of you i'm glad you can do that um but i guess the ball is to me and i'm i'm faced with three choices here brad and maybe you can help me out um so i have uh i have a whole stack of movies dedicated to a single composer so it's a stack Okay. Um, I'm not going to talk about all those movies, but I'll talk about the composer and maybe spotlight one movie. Then I have a single animated film that has a composer that really hasn't done much work, but I think it deserves acknowledgement because it's amazing. And then I have a movie that a lot of people consider one of the best movies of all time, and it happens to be one of the most famous composers in all of film history. Hmm. What do you want? What do you want, Brad? Well, here's the thing. I'm torn because the way you phrase that, I feel like we should pick the animated movie, but I actually want to know what that stack is. I want to know who that composer is with that stack of movies. So I'm going with the stack. Okay, we're, we're tearing into the stack. Give me a second. <laughs> it's pretty heavy. <laughs> and this is like half of it. Like there's still more. Oh, my. So this stack that's, you know, the size of a child <laughs> uh, consists of, and like I said, there's a lot more of this, so this is not a complete reflection of my collection to anybody who cares about such details. That's not very much. I thought you said it was a stack. Gall. Way to waste my fucking time. <laughs> uh, so this stack consists of, and this is not in release order. It's making my eyebrow twitch involuntarily. <laughs> Dragon Tiger Gate, Resident Evil Vendetta, Ghost in the Shell 1 and 2, uh, Shura Yukihime, a.k.a. The Princess Blade, Ipman 1 through 4, and uh, Pat Labor, uh, of which I believe he did the TV series and the three films and the live-action TV series and live-action film. Um, so the composer I'm, I'm talking about here is a Japanese composer by the name of uh, Kenji Kawai. Um, and I've brought him up before. And apparently I love this guy. Uh, <laughs> apparently, like, he's he's my favorite or something. Yeah. Um, because this, this stack is only half of it. It's probably, you know, as long as my arm if I stacked it, you know, vertically. Um, 
yeah, he puts in amazing work. And part of what's really amazing about his scores is uh, he he has a little bit of like John Williams in him, not in terms of his style, not not even at all. But what I mean by that is part of what makes John Williams a gifted composer is uh, his attention to detail um, in regards to film editing. Um, his his music moves like a like like a, a bird in formation with with the visual element of the film. Like you can tell that he's wa- he is watching that that real like laser focus because like all of his strings kick in, all of his flutes kick in. Just w- it matches the movement of the film itself, and it's it's amazing to watch and hear. Um, and Kenji Kawai does the same thing with a lot of his music. Um, he uh, does really 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 long tracks. It's kind of unusual actually. Like uh, he composes sometimes in suites where it's just like you know an entire 10 minute piece dedicated to a character or a a scene and then the director gets to you know edit and splice that audio however he likes into the finished product Um, but then he also does tracks that are meant to follow the flow of the finished edit and it's so precise and it it punctuates moments so beautifully and especially like action tracks where it's like damn like the percussion hit like right when that dude got sucked socked in the face. <laughs> like, <laughs> like this is filmmaking, goddammit. it! <laughs> and, uh, but uh, he favors uh, synthesizers. Um, that's something that we haven't talked about too much in terms of like preferences of instrumentation. But Trent Trent Reznor and uh, your uh, does Johnny Greenwood um, does he favor synth or how's he how does he go with instrumentation? No, I don't think he uses much synth at least in his solo stuff. It, it's more just kind of like minimal instrumentation. Like in in the master, it's like a a bass and just you know a, a like wooden percussion almost type thing. And then okay. Phantom Thread is a lot of you know piano grand kind of orchestral store score kind of thing. I I can't picture. Uh, the score for there will be blood or let hear it off the top of my head but dude that that sounded like um did he do that um yeah i, it, I think so mm-hmm. it sounds like the blue man group at times like, yeah does like, it <laughs> um there's a well it's not as uppity and like dance and rhythm rhythmic like that but like um the scene that comes to mind is like when the oil derrick is like catching fire and stuff yeah. there's that really long piece of music that's almost like a clock ticking mm-hmm. um and it, it has really plinky plunky kind of like pseudo string that's right to it. yeah 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 um, it almost fa- it almost sounds like a hand fabricated instrument or like a found like like a blue man group type situation where it's like oh we got some pvc pipe and uh, yeah. <laughs> we'll just uh, hit it a lot <laughs> whatever happened to them <laughs> I don't know. I think they're still around. Uh, they're probably still doing it. I mean, yeah. it, you can hide your age pretty well with, you know, blue makeup. So it's like probably in their 70s. and just boom, 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 boom. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, has but, it always been the same guys, though? Or has it, is it like a rotating uh, roster? You think I know? I don't know. But they, they certainly had a moment, though, in, in American pop culture. Oh, yeah. Like, they oh, were yeah. everywhere for a minute there. But, um, yeah, Kenji Kawai... Um, beautiful string work like almost like it's almost like a signature of his where it it does get a little like cute where it's like hmm you're starting to sound kind of samey here ken <laughs> like like he has a certain kind of sound with his strings that appears in like most of his films but then he also does a lot of synth work um but his instrumentation is kind of all over the place like he does have tendencies but um the ghost in the shell soundtrack in particular is utterly unique 
um, they do this amazing choir arrangement where I think it's a I think it's like a Japanese choir um, singing in like a, a Chinese style like a traditional Chinese opera style but the lyrics are Japanese and it has this really amazing haunting quality to it that um, the score for Ghost in the Shell is fucking outright amazing um, look it up if you haven't heard it before um, the same with the Pat Labor movies um, they get progressively like more experimental as they go like the, the score for the first film is uh, it's almost like bouncy fun like typical 80s anime action music but then by the time you get to the third one it's like oh oh no like what is this <laughs> like i don't even know what to make of this but it's good is what it is um but like maybe the maybe the most famous like from a mainstream perspective of of his work like internationally anyway because most of his most famous work comes from japanese films um is uh the ipman series because uh, he did all four of them and i gotta say man like even though you know the fourth one came like what six seven years after the third one he showed up like he yeah. fucking showed up and he put in some of his best work maybe ever um in terms of like composing an action score um and uh from a thematic standpoint the the theme music for the entire series is i i used the term before like not not proper being as it's a chinese film series but like fourth of july fireworks show level <laughs> like like familiar and yeah. iconic like the the Ipman theme is strong like it, it's a very strong theme that it resonates very well and it's it's never exploited in the film to the point well the films to the point where it gets annoying where it's like okay we we get it like the movie sucks so we're trying to like shoehorn in the theme music to trick the audience into thinking it's good <laughs> they never like exploit it or pervert it in that way it's just a really amazing piece of music that um, is iterated upon and not necessarily improved but it's it's welcome every time it appears in in all the films and i said before like i think talking to you but um the climactic battle track um from Ipman 4 is like again this this is fucking filmmaking god damn it because <laughs> uh it's it's a uh, not to like spoil things but um they do a reprise of like the theme music and they incorporate it into the like the rhythm and the pace of the fight music. So it's in the middle of like a climactic fight. And the instrumentation and the mood of it is changed ever so slightly in such a way that it it's kind of beautiful. It's like this really amazing moment in a film where it's like it's like you're hearing it. It's like they're saying goodbye. Mm. It's like the, it's like the movie and the music is waving goodbye to you. Like this is the last time you're gonna hear this, and it's okay because it, it, it like just something about it just resonates so deeply that's like damn like if i never hear this again like if i never hear another iteration of this piece of music it doesn't matter because that that was it like that that yeah. was the that was the exclamation point on the end of that thought um but yeah apparently kenji kawaii is my guy because i have a shit ton of movies that he's composed <laughs> now did you see uh that the Ip man films have been announced for 4k did and yeah. that is that is bookmarked like i'm i already have um actually those movies serve as an example of me purchasing something in multiple formats multiple times yeah uh, so this will be hopefully the last time i have to do that <laughs> i uh i saw them get announced for 4k and i thought about sending it to you but i was like no you, you know. probably got some like news <laughs> notification of any time 
Ip Man comes up in the news anywhere online that you get a notification right to your phone. I was like, you've already seen this. No, I, I know a guy on the Hong Kong docks. I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. all set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, that was Kenji Kawaii. But, um, cool, yeah what, yeah. what do you got, Brad? Um, I, I've got two more here, and I might just, uh, you know, bang them out both in the same round if that's okay, because I don't know if I have a ton to say about either of them. Uh, and not that there's any connection really between the two, except for uh, well, they're both from the 80s. They're both uh, only a year apart in release. Uh, the first of these is, uh, you know, I got to highlight another one of my boys. I got a lot of boys. I got a big family. Uh, one of my boys, Dario Argento, his film Tenebrae, which I've only seen this film once. I did like it a lot. I do want to revisit it. Um, and honestly, I don't remember the rest of the score other than the main theme of this film, which I think I've told you about before. I don't know if I've told it, said it on here, but the main theme of Tenebrae is such a banger. I've actually worked out to it. I've gone on runs to this theme. That's how good it is. It is just like, I mean, I can't believe, uh, I mean, I guess I can't believe it, but that this hasn't been like remixed into like a nightclub version. Like that's how just like, just it's got that beat it's got the percussion <laughs> it's uh it's got like it's almost like it feels like it's in different acts because like the first few minutes of the song feels so different from like the end of the song and the middle of the song and it's it's a it's a great theme um and it was the score it was done by the members of goblin but goblin isn't credited so i don't know what the issue what the story is there if like one of the members of Goblin didn't work on it, so they couldn't um, credit the whole band or what what exactly is going on there. But I think there's three credited composers, and they're all uh, members of Goblin. So I don't know if there's um, some sort of maybe rights issues there. And the weird thing is they're all listed, I guess, apparently in the credits as uh, their like, last names like three just three last names which almost feels like it could be like one guy's last name if it was like middle first name middle name last name. so i don't know i don't know what's going on there that they're only credited with their three last names together hyphenated i don't know the story but the op- the theme for tenebrae rocks and um the other film i have which um i can't really highlight any tracks but it's a film i just recently rewatched and loved the score for and that is uh, Michael Mann's Thief with a score by Tangerine Dream. Um, obviously, Tangerine Dream and a lot of 80s scores have been very influential because we've seen that trend sort of come back where the the 80s synth score is all of a sudden in again, and we're seeing a lot of films kind of like repurpose those themes and the, that sound. Um, but the funny thing is that a lot of people when this movie came out hated the score. I think it was actually nominated for a Razzie for like maybe it might have even actually won. Um, but yeah, people really did not like Tangerine Dream's score, which I think is crazy. I I I don't know if maybe just because it did come out in '81, so maybe just the score at that time was maybe it was ahead of the curve and just people weren't they thought it just sounded weird and didn't fit with the film. I don't know, but I think it fits perfectly with, you know, the neon, the, I think it's, uh, I think he's in LA, um, whatever city he is in, you know, the neon city, it, it works perfectly. And, uh, 
Thief is uh, definitely one of Michael Mann's finest hours. So, uh, yeah, I don't know much, uh, many other Tangerine Dream scores, but I'm going to have to check some of them out because I really like that one. Yeah, I can't cite any examples off the top of my head, but I will say this much. Uh, Kyle is a big fan. Yeah. Um, but, Michael Mann, um, Kyle and I have this endless debate, and uh, you like. I hope one day we can get the three of us together to talk about Prometheus because that's a divisive film for some folks. Um, <laughs> you, you and Kyle are in the positive camp. I'm more leaning yep. towards the negative, but... I'm one of those people. I can't hate a movie. Like it, it yeah. they're all my kids. At the end of the day, it's like <laughs> I, I can I can not understand a movie, but you know I I generally don't hate them. But I think that would be a fun discussion. But um, what I'm getting at is uh, Kyle despises heat. Really, um, he he cannot stand heat, and uh, I I love heat. Like, <laughs> like I I can watch that three hour movie any t- any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how you feel about it, but. Yeah, um, I only recently watched it for the first time, but I really liked it. I wasn't quite like uh, a love for me just yet, but it's one. I mean, I just watched it. Was it earlier this year or last year? And I would definitely like. I yeah, I'm like I need to revisit that and check it out again because I really did like it. Yeah, I mean, this doesn't happen all the time, but uh, Brad, you inspired me um, to broaden my cinematic horizons, uh, which is fitting, being as that's the whole point of the podcast um uh i checked out michael mann's the insider uh the mm. other day yeah, uh, yeah. Only, only like a week ago and i remember you telling me it's pretty fucking good and i remember we we talked about uh how it was odd that like that was the one that got all like, the oscars for him yeah and it's like he's done a lot of good work why that one and i checked it out and i was like oh it's because it's pretty good movie <laughs> it's like that maybe that had something to do with it but um yeah that came from your recommendation mostly oh, but cool cool um tangerine dream damn that's like like i i don't know any movies that they worked on off the top of my head but from a tone standpoint that's a marriage that's a perfect marriage of of tones like michael mann and tangerine dream that yeah. sounds like a perfect pairing um and if i had to guess yeah that thief probably takes place in la because he seems to have an affinity for downtown los angeles <laughs> like yeah. it, it appears in a lot of his movies but um thief is very high on my list of things to check out because i've never seen it but i happen to really like michael mann um and i'm slowly kind of like working my way backwards through his filmography so that one and uh the keep are pretty high on my list of his to check out uh black yeah. hat is one that i think i'll just pretend doesn't exist for as long as i can <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's probably for the best yeah if there's one you yeah. can skip it's definitely that one but i want to say you're right though that 1981 um that kind of new wave sound like you know it was it was probably alive and well in like france and at the time what east or west germany <laughs> but uh i i don't think we were quite there yet like, yeah. it probably took a couple years for that to really take take hold over here so maybe it was just ahead of its time and you know people get shit wrong all the time like look oh, yeah. at the john carpenter the thing the ennio morricone score like one of the the most famous and like most critically acclaimed composers of all film history got a razzie yep. <laughs> for, for the score for the thing and now it's like regarded as like a fantastic piece of music um i think it is like oh yeah I, I love that score it just that heartbeat, the electronic thrumming. It's like 
yeah that's all you need <laughs> and that like eerie like pipe organ sound it's like yeah, yeah it, it's perfect it's, that, it works that was one i almost grabbed to talk about because i do love that score so much didn't quite Same grab way. it off the shelf but yeah they were both of us we, we both kind of were like mm. <laughs> uh but um tenebrae uh that's one that i haven't seen the film in fact um i'm i'm that guy who tells other people about giallo all the time but i I don't think I've ever seen a proper Giallo film, to be honest. But I was kind of the guy who guided Kyle towards that, and now he loves that shit. Um, and Tenebrae, I, I do remember you bringing it up before, and I did listen to the theme music uh, w- months ago, like whenever it was you recommended it, and I was like, this is some fucking disco. Yeah, <laughs> like, it's this is great. awesome. It is I loved great. it. <laughs> no, I mean, that serves as reason enough for me to check it out, because I, I do like that sound quite a bit. It mm-hmm. It brings me joy, even in, you know, situations where you're supposed to be creeped out or wherever it's like whatever man the beat's popping (laughs) (laughs) now you say you haven't seen any giallo Mm. is there uh plans for giallo january uh in the cards here (sighs) i mean you planted the seed brad (laughs) 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 might have to happen because i know kyle probably wouldn't have any objections he's the guy who's really into that shit i was just Mm -hmm. the one who pointed him towards it so um i mean in terms of catching up on cinema, that's that's a subgenre of film that I really ought to dip my toes into. So maybe, and, and it's got maybe a good we name. Can have you, maybe Geology we can have January. you in. Yeah, like I, I know we've been wanting to have you over uh, again uh, to do a, a, a three-way conversation, and maybe that would be a good one, being as you could be the Giallo ambassador. I would, most... I wouldn't call myself that, but I'd, I'd be more than happy to discuss. But don't, don't well, give me any to, sort of title. <laughs> compared to the two of us, you probably are more familiar with like the tropes and have seen more of the films than we have. Like, mm-hmm. we, I know them. I know a lot of them by reputation, but I, I can't yeah. pretend to have actually know them front to back. Yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, Giallo January. <laughs> put a put a pin in that. Ah. Uh. Well, uh, I suppose the ball is to me, and I want to say we're wrapping up here, being as you've exhausted your stack, and I'm starting to run out of steam here. So, um, fuck, what's it going to be? You know what? I think this is going to have to be a two-parter. We're going to have to revisit this theme, because I just have too many of these that are so easy for me to that's fair that's like fair. bring to mind so i'm not going to try to get it all done in one go so i'll just uh wrap up with the animated film that i alluded to earlier um and like i said this this is just a sample of what both brad and i have to work with so don't if, if your favorite movie didn't get brought up shut the fuck <laughs> up <laughs> it's my podcast <laughs> uh, so this film is a uh japanese animated film uh this is uh a DVD of a Mobile Suit Gundam, Char's Counterattack. Um, so this is, of course, part of the Gundam franchise, which has been around since, I believe, 1979 and, and counting. It uh, continues to this very day. And anytime you hear me on the podcast, which is probably going to be every episode until we're done with COVID, um, mention the phrase model kit. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually talking about a Gundam model kit so like a little robot yeah, <laughs> yeah. um so I I am heavily invested in uh the Gundam franchise I it's a weird relationship actually because if you if you if you want to if you want me to be perfectly honest um 
the storytelling in Gundam is shit. Like it's terrible. Like it's incomprehensible most times. The characters are usually pretty flimsy. Um, but if you pull the lens as far back as it can go, like take character and storytelling out of the equation and just focus on the world and the concepts, there's some really phenomenal stuff in there. It's just when you actually get to the the products like the movies and like like the comics and stuff it's like oh my god like what is it that you're seeing here like what what is it that you're latching onto that i don't see it's like none nothing like like you don't understand i don't care about any of that because it's all terrible what what i care about is just the designs and the concepts and stuff so like if if i introduce i i try very hard not to introduce people to gundam because it's the most alienating and unforgiving of of massive franchises it doesn't care if you like it. It it just persists. <laughs> so, um, I actually sat my girlfriend down to like watch one episode of a series that takes place late in the chronology. Yeah, and she was like, "I have no fucking clue what's going on." And I was like, "I <laughs> I know you don't, but yeah. thank you for trying." <laughs> um, so this movie though, uh, Char's Counterattack, serves as like kind of like the the culmination of multiple TV series worth of story. So it was uh, actually financed um, via taking a proposed third television series or, or like the closing act of a second television series and diverting those funds towards a feature film. And the director was like, oh, so you mean you'll give me all that money to do a movie? Sure. <laughs> um, so like I said, the storytelling is not the best, but um, from a design standpoint, the animation is breathtaking and the music is amazing. Um, there's a, there's a, classification of story that gets used sometimes uh, space opera um when i think of that phrase or that flavor space opera this this is what i hear this is what i think of um it's composed by uh, shige aki saigusa and as far as i know he composed zeta gundam which was the television series which preceded this film and then a bunch of like legit operas and very little else Hmm. Um, so his, if you look him up, like on Wikipedia or whatever, you're not going to find a whole lot, but what you will find is beautiful. Like it's amazing. Um, and, uh, similar to Tenebrae, um, because of the time period in which it was composed, it does have a little bit of a disco flavor nice, as well as some like full blown orchestra orchestral compositions that sound like straight out of like a classical opera married with you know a disco beat <laughs> so you're like tapping your foot and then you're you know you're having your heart torn out from like the strings and stuff um mm -hmm. but yeah uh, this is a score um similar to conan and similar to glory uh that you can listen and uh, uh departures to some extent but this is a score that you can listen to in isolation and kind of get the whole thing in fact similar to conan because the storytelling is so indecipherable and impenetrable, might be better. It might be better as a straight up listen than to you know attempt to figure out what the fuck is going on in this crazy ass movie. <laughs> um, but from just a pure musical standpoint, it is a wonderful listen. Um, some some of the most heroic themes, some of the saddest like emotional cues. Um, the closing music is absolutely beautiful because. Um, much like a lot of the Japanese composers I mentioned, uh, it's it's a very repetitive score. Um, there's a handful of key themes that are reiterated upon multiple times. Um, it's revisited um, for the finale of the movie, and it's just this like hauntingly beautiful piece of music. It's 
highlighted by some amazing piano work but it's like uh i don't know it's like just imagine the phrase like a miracle in space and put music to it it's stunning um highly recommended it's just like a sit back and listen kind of thing good good to work to actually like yeah if you're work if you're dicking around on your computer it's nice listen i love a good score that you can work to i feel like that's the majority of the time when i'm listening to a score it's while doing some sort of work so yeah i'll have to check that out it sounds like it'd be up my alley the, the music to it absolutely um it comes with a glowing recommendation for me i, I would nice. highly encourage you to check it out but um it's fine. for some reason i don't don't ask me why brad but i'm picturing you plugging plugging away on your computer to the opening theme of uh oh I think it was an Ennio Morricone score. The opening theme of The Untouchables. Yeah. That's me when I'm I'm hacking into things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just picturing you with like a, a bookie's visor and <laughs> like a toothpick hanging <laughs> out of your lip. <laughs> love it. Love it. I don't know why, but that popped into my head. Yeah, you're not far off. You're not too far off. <laughs> <laughs> like how did you know i mean shut up <laughs> uh but yeah I, I think that's enough for for one session but this is definitely something i'd like to revisit sometime because obviously we have a lot to say about all this stuff yeah i think w- we could do one specifically as well uh calling out like not necessarily scores but like curated soundtracks of films because that could be a whole you know there's a whole art of the soundtrack like what you know licensed music are you going to have in your film and i think there could that could be interesting as well oh yeah no i mean that 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 stuff's huge like i mean mm-hmm. look what happened to a lot of the music on like the guardians of the galaxy soundtracks and stuff like yeah a lot of rediscovered like older pieces of music like really kind of came to the fore um actually i have like a short stack of movies set aside specifically for that that we didn't get into today but um, yeah, maybe that's a different angle we can come at it from next time. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that's about enough. So um, thank you uh, so much for coming back to the show, Brad, for another Tales from the Shelf. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so uh, f- for the folks at home, uh, where where can we find you, Brad, and uh, your Cinema Speak podcast? Where can we find all your lovely products? Uh, wherever you listen to podcasts, just search for Cinema Speak. Um, two words, although it hopefully will come up if you search one word as well. But um, Cinema Speak, <laughs> and uh, you know, if you want to follow us on social media, we're on Twitter at the Cinema Speak, Instagram Cinema Speak Podcast, and uh, also you can um, you know subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or just look us up on a web browser page, cinemaspeak.libsyn.com. <laughs> Hit me up in my web zone. Yeah. <laughs> G- like cinemaspeak.geocities.net. <laughs> I'm hip. I'm hip. <laughs> Dancing babies and shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for that, Brad. But um, if you want to look up any of our other catching up on cinema content, though, uh, you can find that at our website at catchinguponcinema.com. And uh, if you want to reach us out to us on the social medias, we have an Instagram at catchinguponcinema as well as a Twitter, at Catching Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those social accounts. And uh, in the meantime, please like, share, subscribe, and all that shit. Um, But that being said, uh, thanks again for joining us on the show, Brad. And uh, we'll catch you all next time.